So it makes sense when we think about, obviously, the different objectives in, in company context. What does this mean, though, if a company decides they're really serious about this and want to win this share of mind battle to be a leader in this incredibly competitive space? What do companies really need to be aware of when trying to implement this idea of portfolio prioritization around treater communities? I think the core challenge here is, is essentially companies using projects or asset level ENPV to make all of their portfolio prioritization decisions, i.e. chasing the what they perceive to be the biggest opportunity kind of regardless of where it sits in the landscape. That's the primary force that pulls companies away from focus areas. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Curtis. Oncology is one of the largest and competitive therapeutic areas. Up to 40% of the pipeline is in oncology. This isn't really a surprise given how many companies are actively investing the space, the result of high unmet need and price premium. But the future promise of oncology is not as certain as it was in the past. Recent ZS analysis shows that on average, oncology blockbuster launches between 2017 and 2021 had on average 47% lower sales than those between 2012 and 2016. This is driven by a range of factors, most notably smaller, more fragmented opportunities based on therapies targeting specific patient subtypes. In addition, it's more competitive. It's not just big pharma players commercializing these drugs. Many emerging pharma companies are choosing to go it alone more often. In fact, between 2020 and 2021, we crossed the threshold where emerging and smaller pharma companies are expected to launch more $500 million products in big pharma, with many of these in oncology. So what does this mean for the future? How do you build an oncology portfolio strategy that's able to withstand the headwinds of the next decade? Joining me for today's discussion is my colleague, Josh Hatham. Josh appeared on a podcast episode with me last year, The Value of Focus, and now we're back for, for another discussion. So Josh, great to have you back. Could you give us a brief intro again? Thanks, Jen. So nice to be back. I appreciate you having me on again. I'm a partner at ZS based in our Philadelphia office. I am a part of our pipeline and launch strategy practice and specifically focus on issues related to portfolio strategy and life sciences. So I spend most of my time having the, the pleasure of working with a lot of different companies and speaking to a lot of different senior leaders across the industry on that topic. Great. And I know this is kind of your passion area. And to your point, you focus most of your work there. You published a lot of thought leadership. And last year, we talked a lot about the piece that you did on the value of focus. And the essence of your argument there was that you know, companies that were able to maintain a top two leadership position in a given therapeutic area were really a lot more likely to have greater shareholder return than companies that didn't have that position. So it seems pretty intuitive, but what was so provocative and intriguing about that idea? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I did have the pleasure of speaking to many different people across the industry about that topic, and I, I honestly wasn't sure exactly what to expect going into it. It, it turned out there were really two different schools of thought on it, um, or, or two different ways that it was, you know, intriguing beyond just, yes, that's great, thanks, move along, please. 
One of them was that, you know, we did get some fundamental disagreement with the thesis from some people. Um, I think usually what that boiled down to was a trade-off or a perceived trade-off between the benefits of diversification in a portfolio versus focus in a portfolio. And, you know, there's the, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole here, but kind of thinking about the differences between an actual, you know, portfolio manager in a, in kind of a liquid assets domain versus, versus a pharmaceutical company. There are a lot of important differences um, that need to be considered. The other flavor of response we got was that this makes sense, but we have an execution problem in the industry with following this advice. I have, for example, had a chief commercial officer of a large pharma company say, essentially, this is how we think, but it's not how we act. And it's tricky, right? This is the, the hardest part of portfolio strategy or really any capital allocation exercise is having to deprioritize some things in order to prioritize others. That is a, it's a very difficult thing. For companies to do, it's actually counter to human nature, right? It triggers our loss aversion to say, hey, this great idea that people put a lot of thinking into and seems great on paper isn't the best idea. So we, we actually shouldn't invest in it, even though on paper it, it looks like a good idea as a kind of standalone idea. And then there were some, you know, there, there are some areas of the industry, of course, where it's, it's actually genuinely challenging to, to fit into this TA focus framework. For example, there, you know, there are legitimate challenges in, in fitting a discovery strategy into, into this framework. I think you know, there's, a, there's a way to build a Venn diagram between them and then, and then pull through the portfolio strategy more in a development context. But it is there, you know, the emerging business model of the platform company in the industry also, I think, challenges this, this premise. Again, there's a, there's a way to apply it. It just needs to be tailored to that context. So it's interesting, you touch on a few different angles that have kind of emerged from this previous point of view that you published. You've now kind of taken that and gone in a different direction, or not a different direction, but building on it with oncology. What is it about oncology that kind of interested you in wanting to understand what focus in oncology looks like? It's a good question. I think just fundamentally oncology is, is such a, a larger and more heterogeneous market than many of the other therapeutic areas we were contemplating in that initial work, as, as well as just the broad interest in the industry and in oncology and investing in oncology. You know, 18 of the, of the 20 largest pharma companies in the world have some investment going into oncology. So it's, it's unsurprising that it would be more competitively intense and have a greater need for this more nuanced or subtle thinking. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, just given all the activity in every company is somehow invested in oncology, I think if we looked back 10 years, I think just being in oncology would have been considered to be focused. But now looking ahead and, and seeing how much oncology has evolved and how competitive and nuanced that market is like how are you defining focus in the context of an oncology portfolio yeah so what we're doing with our current work is we're trying to add on to the existing thinking paradigm right so that today when a company talks about their oncology strategy or their oncology portfolio strategy they're they're usually anchored to one or, or both of two different dimensions. One of them is a biological system or pathway or mechanism of action target. That's about the, 
the element of the disease or the disease that you want to address with your portfolio. And then the, the second dimension is, is oftentimes some flavor of um, modality or technology. You want to be a, a leader in cell therapy and in oncology, that sort of thing. But And both are perfectly valid ways of shaping a portfolio strategy. What we're trying to do here is introduce a third dimension, which is the customer. And the, really, the thesis boils down to the idea that if you want to be a leader in oncology, leadership itself actually requires an audience. Companies directly benefit from increasing their share of mind and their recognition as a leader with their customers. And then you have to define who the audience is, right? We In this research we did, we picked physicians as the sort of primary unit of measure um, really because, you know, physicians are still the primary locus of control in treatment decisions today in oncology. Um, you know, even as we build towards a, a future where patients and accounts have more of a stronger hand in those treatment decisions, you know, as long as accounts are like grocery stores choosing what goes on the shelves, the, the person pushing the shopping cart, the oncologist will continue to be important. So we, we chose to focus on the oncologist as a, as a way of defining areas of focus within oncology. Yeah, and I think that was an interesting lens that you brought to it and kind of knowing about the value of focus and how we were defining focus very much tied to a, a physician specialty. You know, oncology is challenging in that it's so diverse and expansive. You know, we often look at oncology treaters as separated into those that treat solid tumors versus those that treat liquid tumors and, and you know, hemox. But there's so much heterogeneity within those classifications. And so despite our desire to simplify, and we see many companies making that simplification, what I thought was really interesting about your research is that it, it challenged that assumption quite a bit. Uh, can you tell a bit more about what you found? Spot on. And patient caseloads are just much more diverse than um, uh, than than popular opinion in the in the industry holds. Oncologists are less specialized than we imagine them to be. Think about this. There is no tumor for which the top 50% of treaters spend 50% of their time on patients with that tumor. So put it another way, if, if you're a patient and you have some given tumor, you are very unlikely to see an oncologist that spends a majority of their time focused on patients like you who have that same tumor. The landscape of specialization in oncology is just incredibly messy, um, and our, our attempt with this research was to, to simplify it for the purposes of portfolio strategy and you know, broader commercial strategy context. What we literally did with this research was we took a, an end-to-end -end claims data downloads that went back a, a few years and covered essentially every indication within oncology. And we use this to find centers of gravity in this highly heterogeneous treatment landscape. Um, we identified eight treater communities, three that we called mass communities and five communities that seem genuinely more specialized. And then many tumors really sat in this long tail of, of tumors where there just were not in a sufficient bolus of oncologists with any level of focus on them um, that, that they could be defined as, a, as their own community or part of another community. Some of these eight communities are intuitive, as you said, Jen, but not certainly not all of them. The three mass communities that we 
see in this landscape are lung cancer treaters, breast cancer treaters, and multiple myeloma treaters. And when we say lung cancer treaters, breast and multiple myeloma treaters, they still have a strong degree of overlap with other tumors, right? As I, as I mentioned, the, you know, the top 50% of treaters for any one of those tumors don't spend 50% of their time on average with patients with that tumor, despite the, the high prevalence of lung, breast, and multiple myeloma. Within hematology, as you pointed out, we often think um, in the industry of hematology oncology as kind of a, a monolithic domain of the market, but it's actually split pretty neatly into leukemias and lymphomas treaters. There is overlap for sure, but the, the overlap is much tighter within those two pockets. Um, and then multiple myeloma really does sit separate from those two in the heme landscape. And on the solid tumor side, I think there were there were some surprises too. Um, for example, women's cancer is really just gynecological cancers. Breast cancer does not fit very very well with the gynecological cancers. And then gastrointestinal and, and urinary cancers. There's again some overlap that were that was sufficient to call them specialized communities. It's really interesting, and I. I know we talked about this and the claims data was was U.S. focused and that if we were to extrapolate outside of the U.S., it would likely be different depending on the, the healthcare structure and how centralized things were. But as a general concept, it probably holds and really challenges this view of what matters to a customer. Uh, a lot of companies are devising portfolios in a way that makes sense from like a business unit perspective, but not necessarily representative of how oncologists actually treat patients in their caseload today. So this idea of treater communities is really interesting. And I think the other piece that I picked up from the research was this concept of share of mind. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why that's important? Yeah, so we're thinking now from a building your reputation standpoint. So if you put yourself in the shoes of one of these oncologists who sees a wide variety of, of different types of tumors and different types of patients week to week, month to month, it's very hard to be relevant to that person on a frequent basis if you're a single product or two product company for the types of tumors that that person treats. You know, there, there are a handful of products in oncology that are so widely used that, you know, they can endow their owner with that leadership reputation without having a, you know, a, a big, robust portfolio around them. But, you know, most of the time for the other the other 99% of the products in, in oncology, it really takes building out a meaningful portion of that oncologist's armamentarium in order to establish that share of mind and be relevant to that oncologist on a regular basis. Interesting. So let's build on this concept then of, of treater communities and that as a way to get share of mind. How would we use this to make better decisions and how we would design and build an oncology portfolio? And how globally relevant would this portfolio be? Well, I think, you know, for one, we need to think about the position the company is in, right? There are, you know, dozens and dozens of companies with clinical stage assets in oncology, and some of them should use this in, in different ways than others. If you're a, a large company and have some degree of established presence in oncology, the first step is probably to reflect on that existing leadership strategy, as many companies would define it. To what extent will the current path 
align with building actual leading positions with customers, with actual customer segments we've defined. It's possible that you may be further behind than you think in doing that if you've defined that fairly narrowly, e.g. one particular tumor or one particular mechanism of action um, that won't actually build to that leading position within a community. The second step, I think, is to layer this consideration of target treater communities on top of pipeline prioritization decisions that these companies are making all the time, right? How might your priorities change with this lens? There may be programs, clinical programs, or BD targets that may not make sense by themselves, but actually contribute to a leadership position or vice versa, where there are programs or, or targets that might make sense by themselves, but as we were saying earlier, um, just because they make sense on paper doesn't mean they are necessarily the very best use of capital within the company. Um, so you may want to, to reprioritize. And then, uh, you know, thinking about our more of our emerging players in oncology, you know, again, very dependent on the objectives that particular company has, right? Some companies are trying to get a product to market with meaningful top-line forecasts for valuation purposes. Um, and for a company just executing against that strategy, this probably has less relevance than it would for others. But as soon as you go beyond that, if your goal is to become an important player in oncology for the long haul, even if you're starting small for now, this layer can help you be really thoughtful about which ocean you actually want to swim in. There are a lot of big fish out there in oncology, um, and it, it may be that you know, picking a corner of the industry and actually understanding the, the boundaries around that corner, what defines that corner in a clear way is, is helpful. And I think that's something this research offers. Of course, for a company like that, you can always explore alternative commercial models to gain revenue while keeping at least the, um, your SG&A or, um, or commercial infrastructure more targeted around a customer segment you actually want to, to own. Lots of ways to apply this, I think, but uh, must be dependent on context. So it makes sense when we think about, obviously, the different objectives in, in company context. What does this mean, though, if a company decides they're really serious about this and want to win this share of mind battle to be a leader in this incredibly competitive space? What do companies really need to be aware of when trying to implement this idea of portfolio prioritization around treater communities? It's a really good question, Jen. It takes me back to the beginning of this conversation, talking about the challenges of implementing portfolio focus and in general and the, the problem of loss aversion, saying no to ideas that, that seem really good on paper. I think the core challenge here is, is essentially companies using project or asset level ENPV to make all of their portfolio prioritization decisions, i.e., chasing the, the you know, what, what they perceive to be the biggest opportunity kind of regardless of where it sits in the landscape. That's the primary force that pulls companies away from focus areas. It's a, a big idea that seems like a tremendous opportunity, but it sits outside of our strategy. By pursuing it, we are therefore deprioritizing parts of our strategy. So, you know, I, I think that's likely to be the the hardest part of implementing this for companies in this industry is that pull away from the core. If you can, if you can actually use this as a, essentially a second dimension, right? 
if you have EMPV as one core dimension of how you think about prioritization, I'd literally use this alignment with strategy as a second dimension in pipeline prioritization. I think that alone can actually help companies at least make explicit what is currently sort of an implicit assumption that it's okay to look for opportunities anywhere, whether or not it aligns with sort of a proactive preconceived strategy. I like how you put it like that, Josh. It, it basically all comes down to focus. And this is another way to ensure that that's top of mind with decision making. Oncology is going to continue to be a hot place to be in, and the competition is only going to increase. As companies look to become established players in this space, being more intentional about defining where and how to focus can provide an edge. Oncologist communities are one way to think about focus, and it makes sense. But it's not the only way, and different options will fit different companies based on their strategic intent, willingness and ability to focus, and effectively commercialize to win this share of mind battle. But what all companies can and should do is be more intentional about bringing the customer lens in much earlier into portfolio strategy decision-making. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Inside Global Pharma podcast.